Hello, and welcome to another episode of Emerge. In this episode, my guest is Max Borders. Max is the author of a recent book called The Social Singularity, How Decentralization Will Allow Us to Transcend Politics, Create Global Prosperity, and Avoid the Robot Apocalypse. There's a lot of wonderful stuff in this interview, um, and too much for me to really talk about in the preamble. I really enjoyed this conversation with Max. Um, I think that he has managed to create a kind of big picture description of the emerging paradigm that we've been inquiring into on this show. And he does a really good job of capturing the diversity of components that make up that new paradigm, all the way from, you know, the study of consciousness to uh, specific methods of decentralized organizing. Um, we talk about hollow chain. We talk about psychedelics. We talk about uh, why voting doesn't matter, and and, and so much more. And so, um, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. I know I did. Um, and before we jump in, though, I, I, I would like to ask um, for your support. Uh, I've been running this podcast now for some time, uh, you know, paying for the various hosting services and uh, using my own time because it's extremely exciting to me. I do this because I'm, I'm passionate about these topics and I'm passionate about, about learning. Um, and I'm been kind of surprised. More people have been listening, more people have been tuning in. And there's a number of things that I'd like to do to kind of take this project to the next level. And part of that is I think I want to see that people want this to exist. You know, it's really beautiful to me when people reach out and say, hey, this podcast, I, I really enjoyed this podcast. I really like what you're doing. Um, and I, I want to invite in your financial support too. Uh, the platform that I run this off of is called Anchor, anchor.fm. And they just made it, they released a new feature that makes it super easy for people to support uh, podcasts on their platform. And so um, I invite you to go to anchor.fm slash slash emerge or check out the show notes. There's a link that makes it super easy to give a little bit of money um, as a way of expressing that this is valuable to you and as a way to uh, help me uh, be able to, you know, both um, continue the quality of conversation as well as hopefully improve it over time. Um, and so um, thank you if, if that's something that you can consider doing. And obviously, and of course, as Sam Harris says, if it's at all a kind of question or, or you're not sure if you have the money to do it, don't do it. I don't need the money that badly. Um, you know, the, prefer you to get the benefit of listening. Um, okay, I, I, I will probably keep asking for that kind of support as the show goes on, but I, I I'm, uh, appreciate you. Uh, listening to this invitation. And um, without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Emerge with Max Borders.
Welcome to another episode of Emerge. On this episode, my guest is Max Borders. Max is the author of the book, The Social Singularity, How Decentralization Will Allow Us to Transcend Politics, Create Global Prosperity, and Avoid the Robot Apocalypse. All things that we've covered on this show previously, so very, very apt. Um, and, And I found this book to be very provocative and, 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 and quite inspired in, in how it relates to the opportunity before us to create both a decentralized or distributed future as well as an abundant one. And so in this way, it, it carries forward one of the themes of the show, which is this um, blending or coming together of idealism and pragmatism. So topics in the book included distributed systems, collective intelligence, the, this idea of, of, of a poly state, which is uh, really interesting, which I've been exploring, and I hope we get to talk to, and as well as the political use of psychedelics. So you, you get a, a sense of the kind of um, breadth that is included in this book. Um, and so, of course, we won't be able to dive into everything here, but I'm hoping that Max and I can talk about some things that will uh, uh, excite you as the listener enough to pick up the book and, and perhaps even uh, come back and engage with us some more and, and, and keep the conversation alive. So, uh, Max, welcome to Emerge. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Yeah. And, um, so, I mean, there's so many places we could start, but the most obvious one is, uh, you know, what is the social singularity and uh, what's its connection perhaps to the kind of more Kurzweilian uh, technological singularity? I think that's a fine place to start. And, uh, and, I'll, and I'll tell you, um, Probably, I, I will do a better job of articulating it in the book, uh, or at least more a more tidy articulation of the social singularity. But let me try to put it in terms uh, that that we can relate to the technological singularity of, of Ray Kurzweil. Everyone, I guess, listening to your show is probably aware of that that singularity, the, the technological singularity. And that's really based on this idea that uh, computing power increases a la Moore's law extrapolated into the future are likely to give us, you know, smarter and smarter machines, machines that will be able to take over more and more human tasks. And, and that this is going to cross all sorts of, all sorts of lines of, of industry. Um, and, you know, there's more to the idea of the technological singularity. There's, in essence, a waking up of the robots, a sentience that is achieved through, uh, uh, one would think, both networking um, technologies as well as advances in AI. And at, at some future point, the, the, these, these machines will achieve a kind of awareness or sentience, whether that it takes the form of an actual consciousness of the form that humans have is another question. But ultimately, that that sing- point of singularity is a theoretical point in the future that I agree more or less is going to happen. Now, with a social singularity, there's a, a probably an underappreciated process of human advancement in terms of reorganization through technology. And it's not to say that it's it's meant to it. It will allow us to compete in some sense with AI, but it'll also function in complementary ways with AI. So. Mm. The, the idea is there will be a the- theoretical point in the future of the social singularity, a theoretical point in the future where humans are able to lateralize the rela- their relationships to the point or decentralize the state of affairs 
in such a way <clears throat> that their collective intelligence will improve and um, power will essentially shift through a kind of complexity transition uh, from hierarchical, pr primarily hierarchical social organization to primarily lateralized or networked social organization. And that, that point is going to have profound implications for humanity, I believe. Mm, great. And so that is kind of, I think, what we will weave in and out of this conversation. But that kind of gives you a sense of the teleology or, or future that I think you're pointing to and, and, and describe very interestingly and persuasively in the book, in my opinion. Um, and maybe before we unpack that more, I was thinking that we could just say a little bit about, um, you know, uh, the current state of our so-called democracy here in the United States, right? And so you actually have a kind of frame that I hadn't heard before, which was pretty mind-opening about why voting doesn't really matter. And <laughs> my favorite part, and I, I highlighted this, was you quoted the political philosopher Jason Brennan saying, telling someone they can't complain about an election if they didn't vote is akin to telling a homeless person that they can't complain about being poor unless they play the lottery every day. <laughs> and I, I mean, that's a, it's, it's, that's a very provocative statement. And I think it... it um, it, it bears unpacking and it bears kind of focusing on just as a, a, a way to understand the radicality of, I think, the social singularity that you're pointing to. So um, why is voting uh, something that essentially doesn't matter or a meaningless gesture? And, and what does this say about the current state of how we organize humans? I think it there. I think there are a lot of facets to this. Um, one of those facets is this. This idea that when we um, when we collectivize our preferences in a pool of other preferences and get some unitary result, that that's somehow a good thing and that we're somehow meaningfully connected with that. But when we aggregate those preferences with those of, say, 300 million others, and you're lucky to get that many people to vote in any given election cycle. So let's say 150 million, 150 million voters in any given um election cycle. Why is it that we think that our vote matters? If you just look at, look at it in terms of statistics, those statistics are not favorable to your having any meaningful um, expectation of affecting the outcome of the election. You, you as, we, as I say, uh, your vote is like a teardrop in the ocean, and you're trying to change the tide with that teardrop. It's mm. just absolutely impossible. Um, and so, and, and those who have uh, much subtler uh, or distinct or pragmatic or not so partisan views are even more lost. Mm -hmm. If you live in a state where maybe you are a partisan, but even if you live in a state where it's not a battleground state, you have even less import. If you're if you say are a Republican in the state of Texas, your candidate is likely to win because there are more Republicans. They outnumber the Democrats in the state of Texas. And yet, who cares? Um, you're, you're, so then you're just blending in with more people. And yet if you're in the minority, you know that you have, you're less likely to, to have your, your vote affect the out outcome of the election anyway, because you're going to be overwhelmed by the majority, a, a majority that you know exists in your, in your jurisdiction. So just from a statistical standpoint, it's, 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 
it's like praying for a lightning strike. Um, mm-hmm. But we get sort of wrapped up in the sense of civic rectitude with voting that is it allows us both to sort of signal how how good we are to other people and have a um, a real doctrinaire political stance without actually having to do much of anything except signal that rectitude. So I'm not a huge fan of democracy or voting. Um, I mean, of course, I I would think you know. When comparing democracy with past social experiments, it's going to be preferable preferable to to some sort of totalitarian dictatorship. But I'm just not sure it's the golden calf we make it out to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and one thing that's I think also useful to presence is uh, it it may be the case, it may be you may be persuaded that democracy is a is a reasonably functional system. At least it got us to this point. But when we when we look forward and even you know look presently, it's clearly running up against its limits, and those limits are going to be stretched more and more as the kind of technologies that you describe in your book come online, and then you know as as you mentioned uh, get combined in new ways that then lead to more combinations, and we're kind of at the very beginning of a, of a very radical shift in how in the kind of powers of humanity, and so. It's um, what I think you're pointing to is, is is the need for the ways that we organize ourselves to kind of um, become more adaptive. And so I wonder if you could um, uh, uh, talk about the relationship uh, insofar as it exists in your mind between what we call democracy, the kind of current system by which we govern the United States, at least, um, and this idea and ideal of collective intelligence. Yeah, I think um, I think to answer that, the best thing to do is to give you an alternative case, and it is one that your listeners might be suspicious of. But I want to I want to try to do that. Um, first of all, consider. Um, Old, older forms of collective intelligence in terms of legal frameworks, okay? Um, in, you know, traditionally, we have two types of law that are operating in the Western world. And however you want to define Western world, let's just define it loosely and, and, and go with me for a second. And those two types of law are statute law, that is sort of the Justinian Code or the Code Civil of the French and the Romans, which you have either, you know, smart people or deliberative bodies making laws for everyone else. And that's either representative or, or not, but ultimately it's about uh, deliberation and hoping that smart people get it right. Okay. That's one kind of law. The other kind of law is, is the common law. And it, it tends to be a much more flexible and adaptive form of law. The collective wisdom of the past, namely the collective intelligence of the past, is much able, much better able to be captured in common law um, decisions. And so you get this, you know, some of these tricks of the trade in law, such as stare decisis and other things that where you try to appeal to the wisdom of the past, but you also can overturn precedents through uh, further uh, deliberations in the courtroom that happen by virtue of actual collisions or actual encounters between and among real people, rather than it being this sort of uh, theory of how governance should be in statute. 
So it tends to be less sort of solidified in amber. It can be changed. It can be molded. And the common law is much more flexible and adaptive in that way. This, the, I think you can say similarly that democracy is, is sort of like this 50% plus one vote kind of, kind of notion or mm-hmm. in other situations, it's 60% plus, plus one if it's, a, if it's some legislative body. But if you compare that idea, this aggregation of preferences to a single unitary outcome to, to a system like holacracy, where holacracy is meant to be an organization management philosophy that businesses use to be able to manage their complexity better and self-organize around roles. So you, you, you function much more like a biological organism than a machine. Hmm. The, Brian Robertson, the founder of holacracy, actually makes the case that you could scale holacracy to the level of, of humanity, of, mm. of society. So it's not just something that happens. It's, it's a holonic system and, and not to confuse readers, but, but holonic means systems within systems. It's a holistic way of looking at how systems interrelate. And there is adaptation at the protocol level as well. So democracy is just kind of uh, simplistic and the aggregation of preferences is, is, is extremely problematic. I'll just leave it at that. But I'd say going forward in terms of our collective intelligence, even if we don't use technology, uh, uh, even if we only adapt our social technology and and we don't, we're not even talking about writing lines of code yet. um, Something like holacracy would be, could be more efficient and superior in a lot of ways, both in the expression of preferences and both in terms of self-organization writ large. Mm. And, um, just what is your what is definition, definition of social technology, kind of working definition? Thanks for asking. That. That's a really, really good question. Um, another word for it is institutions or institutional rules. Whenever you have a rule of any sort, that that tends to guide someone's behavior. And when you're guiding someone's behavior, you're creating a latticework of incentives. When you create a latticework of incentives, you're, you're more or less likely to have someone behave in a certain way. And that really is um, thinking then about social technologies is thinking about systems of incentives or rule sets in, in which people operate. Can, they, um, can you realize uh, a complex system within a set of protocols? Mm. Is it more, more or less likely to give rise to uh, complex orders? Or is it merely a complicated or Byzantine uh, set of restrictions and constraints that don't give rise to complexity, but rather uh, simply constrain behaviors Mm -hmm. or uh, create regulatory frameworks that are not flexible and adaptive? So the rules of the game uh, are, are super important first question to ask in terms of thinking about how robust and flourishing you hope your society will be. Right. Yeah. And you have this phrase that you repeat throughout the book that we become what we follow. We shape our rules and then our rules shape us. And so there's a way of seeing this that, you know, maybe this is a new word, social technology to, to, to you as a listener, but um, we are already embedded in social technology, like the, the, the forms of institutions that regulate us in a variety of ways are, are social technologies. And we can start to become aware of, you know, what are they incentivizing us to do? And 
you know, maybe uh, uh, what might we wish, might, what, how might we wish they were different? Um, and just to kind of get in that mindset of, oh, okay, like social technologies are already operating on me. I'm already in a kind of, as you say, la- lattice work of, of incentives and structures and regulations and rules and all of that. Um, because, and the reason why it's important, I think, to become uh, particularly aware, develop that sensitivity is, is it seems like we're moving into a time when for the first time, maybe the, the, the capacity to create these lattice works is being redistributed. You know, this used to be only really the domain of governments and to some degree corporations. But now, you know, if you can program in Solidity, the Ethereum language, or if you start to learn to program Holochain, you can create these systems, these structures, these um, technological and therefore scalable versions of social technologies like holacracy or, you know, consensus-based decision-making or whatever, pick your favorite kind of um, social technological framework. And so uh, it's a really interesting time in that way. And I'm I'm curious, like, uh, there seems to be this kind of uh, dialogue happening now or beginning now, or maybe it's been going on for a while and I'm just becoming aware of it, between, uh, as you say, these social technologies, which are kind of like things that we do uh, as humans that aren't woven into code, but now we're kind of beginning to be able to weave things like holacracy into code. And I guess that intersection is so fascinating. And I'd just like to hear you reflect on like what you're seeing and what you're hoping for in that, uh, that coming together of social technology and, uh, you know, call it what you will, distributed ledger technologies or things like that. Yeah, I think, um, Pulling out to the the thirty thousand foot view, my answer to that would be as follows: It's it is the most wonderful time to be alive because we're entering a post ideological era, and by that I mean it's no longer the province of the the great thinkers who sort of spin up theories about how the way the, about the way the world ought to be, and then have this expectation through revolution or conquest or whatever that great swaths, great jurisdictions will adopt these philosophical positions and hope to be able to implement them on a mass scale. We've seen the horrors of the 20th century with respect to those, ex- those great experiments. What this allows for, what technolo- technological advances such as Holochain or blockchain or any other distributed ledger type tech enables is a system of concurrent experiments in governance. And it may be that people's preferences differ and some find one set of, uh, of uh, institutions or social technologies built with actual technologies to be superior to another. And they both exist in the, at the same time. And yet they're going to be competing, which means that they're going to be evolutionary equilibria. And that's just a fancy way of saying people are going to leave systems they don't like. They're going to enter systems they do like. And whatever is left will be the winners over time. Mm. That is interesting to me because it flies in the face of this sort of top-down ideological um, way of thinking about, about society and political philosophy. In essence, f- political philosophy is dead uh, in that way as mere ideology, but political philosophy as a 
way of thinking about how to instantiate systems of incentives or programmable incentives Hmm. or build community or build culture, because as we said, our rules shape us. These are extremely promising, extremely diverse, and may the best systems win. Mm. Yeah. And, and it, my, my sense is, and you, you, or I guess what you say in the book, is that this isn't a matter of um, changing our current institutions, but simply obsoleting them by creating these systems and then having them be constrained and driven and evolved through kind of market forces. Is that an accurate description of, of what you see? I think it is. I think it is. It, it, it's, it's certainly accurate to a point. Now, people have pushed back on me, very, very, very good minds. People like Daniel Pinchbeck, for example, who's a, hmm. a formidable thinker and writer out of New York. You know, he's sort of, he's sort of said, you know, look, I love this idea. I think you're onto something. I love uh, I love the idea of, of um, sort of the muting of ideological fire and experimentation within systems of incentives. I mean, this, this, this strikes him as intuitively right. And yet for him, there are big planetary level deal breakers that he believes elites have to come in and, and control. And I think that is problematic. I mean, I would push back yet again to that position because I think once you reach a certain level of complexity, there is no there's simply no way uh for uh elite elites and hierarchies to be able to function in a in a in distributed systems. I just don't think it it I mean the whole point is that the the meta view is is we're seeing this unfolding of decentralization not by choice but by process, by an unfolding evolutionary process. And that that's largely going to be a good thing. Hmm. But um, I would, so the way I would try to reconcile uh, someone like uh, Daniel Pinchbeck's concerns about planetary scale problems, let's say global warming or, or, or other, um, you know, commons, you know, commons problems, environmental commons problems, say, is to, um, is to continue to experiment with, with, uh, decentralized and distributed systems and frameworks that allow for superior um, uh, governance of the commons, where it is a clear case that something should be common, commonly held resources, for example, the air or the atmosphere. So that that I think is 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 more promising than people who um, who have these deep concerns about planetary uh, level issues. I think they should think about the f- the flexibility and adaptability of these kinds of systems, mm. and think about you know um, there are a lot of people who care about these issues, and their concerns can can be captured in in these new incentive systems mm. in these new systems of governance. So I don't think that that the idea of decentralization is mutually exclusive from planetary level concerns. In fact, I think they can get to their goal of mitigating environmental harms, for example, more quickly by thinking in, in just these sorts of terms. Right. Yeah. And especially if, if we combine these distributed sorts of systems with, um, you know, uh, more conversations about values and a more awareness of the impact of our choices, right? Like if we could choose different incentive systems, uh, I imagine that there would also be a market for helping people make those decisions and, you know, uh, helping people, uh, co-create systems that are aligned with their best selves and their highest aspirations for 
the future of humanity and uh, you know future generations. And uh, I mean, there's just so much emergent richness. I think that once we start to unpack and explore what the kind of flavor of the future that you're pointing to is, it's um, yeah. I mean, it's it's beautiful and it, and it requires a really significant re organizing of our sense of how things get done and how we relate to each other and what politics are and can be. And uh, that, yeah, absolutely right. You really just nailed it right there. Um, that is the most important aspect of this. And, and I, I don't think it can be overstated. Democracy is an incentive system. Let's go back to that question for a moment. Uh, and seen in light of uh, both collective intelligence and incentives. The incentive system of a democratic republic with a two-party system is winner-take-all, is my, my worldview versus your worldview. There's no sense of synthesis or reconciliation or adaptability or, or experimentation when it's winner-take-all. Mm. Well, except for the, the special interests that you have to please, and they're really running the show anyway. Mm. But that's not getting us anywhere anyway, uh, the, having the special interests run the show. Um, now, let's just suppo- suppose that we didn't have a problem with special interests where, where, where the uh, regulatory agencies or politicians were, were captured and so on. We, we would have instead a, a situation where we still have great swaths of the country not getting their preferences um, expressed. Now. What these technologies allow us to do is show, is to, to conduct a series of radical experiments or some not so radical and show what, what actually works and show what people are capable of that politics can't. It, it causes us to, let's say there are two diametrically opposed, or let's say there are three. Let's say there is a libertarian perspective a progressive perspective and a, a conservative perspective. Now there are a lot more, obviously there are populist strains of all these and, and so on. And, but let's just stick with three for a moment. If you take that, f- that, that set of three, the libertarians market friendly as they are, are going to say, try to find markets in all things before you try anything. If you have a market failure, Try to find an entrepreneurial solution to market failure. That sounds contradictory, but markets almost always work better. The progressives, and they're right. They're absolutely right about that. But the progressives are going to come along and they're going to say, but wait a minute, you need to make sure that you understand that markets don't work for everything. Sometimes we need to change culture. Sometimes we need to have a set of values that are not transactional. And some things are just simply outside the transactional realm. Well, they are also right. Okay, it's not that the, the the libertarians are wrong. It's the but here we now have a yes, but and then the conservatives are coming along and they might say, "Wait a minute now, don't don't change things too quickly and don't throw away the baby with the bathwater because we have these tradi- traditions that have pr- and practices that have worked for hundreds of years. We need to be respectful of those as we engage in our experimentation because they almost always work for a reason. So what? what wisdom or knowledge is embedded in tradition. And they are also right to some respect, in some respects and to some degree. If we take all of those positions in 
various contexts and synthesize them into a kind of interconnected form of wisdom based on the context and based on the, the issue, what we might find is something far, far superior than what a political outcome will give us. Namely, the wisdom of all these positions, the best of all these positions synthesized uh, for one common end, that is the flourishing of humanity. And I think these technologies allow us to see the concerns and objections and, and values of other what, what had been formerly ideological tribes much more clearly uh, than, than partisan politics does. In fact, there's no contest. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's so striking once you start to really consider this alternative way of coordinating human activity. Like right now in the status quo, differences actually polarize people and keep them from uh, kind of meeting in a variety of ways. Whereas the kind of uh, possibility that you're uh, pointing to, it seems like difference is actually the very thing that enables wisdom to arise and for collective intelligence to be sort of endlessly amplified. Right. There's always, an, there's always a chance that you could be wrong. There's always a chance that you could be wrong in, in a grand cosmic sense. And there's always a chance that you could be wrong in some certain context or some certain um, embedded set of circumstances of time and place where you might be right in another. With systems of these new systems of collective intelligence, with low cost entry and exit, we're able to determine context in which certain certain incentive systems work with certain cultural and within certain cultural contexts with certain membership. And we're able to find equilibria and disequilibria that we couldn't find before because partisan politics is so about creating laws and putting them in amber for a hundred years. Mm. It's almost impossible to change a law once it's passed. Mm. Mm. And so, you know, depending on how aware listeners are of this kind of emerging space, and, and you're really the first person, and I'm sure there are more, but you're the first person I've seen to really consolidate, I think, a lot of the different streams of conceptual frameworks and philosophies to present a really unified picture of what a decentralized or lateralized future that amplifies collective intelligence and is essentially more humane and abundant might look like and, and, and how we might go about starting to build that future. And, and I'm curious, uh, you know, what actual experiments you're seeing now so that we can start to ground this conversation. Uh, what experiments are you seeing now that uh, sort of embody, at least to some degree, uh, what you've attempted to articulate in your book? Well, let me be selfish. Let me be selfish if you don't mind. The, my favorite one is one I'm actually working on right now. And um, I'm glad you mentioned Holochain because we're in, um, we're in conversations with a bunch of the folks over there about building it with their tech. But I, I think their tech is, is, is the most promising to build it. Mm. But I had been, um, I run a little nonprofit. And, you know, as part of my, uh, part of my enterprise in this nonprofit, I was uh, putting out articles a little medium articles, you know, just thinking about this and that. In one of the articles, um, I did a big critique of a UBI, a universal basic income. And there, you know, there are 
all sorts of problems associated with universal basic income, but I, gener- I generally want to acknowledge the concerns and motivations that people have to support a universal basic income. And so thought it wasn't enough to simply um, criticize. I needed to, to formulate an alternative. So I said about just coming up with a set of criteria for, you know, acknowledging what I believe to be is, 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 uh, comes up short with respect to UBI and what could be a better system or superior along certain dimensions, understanding that I could, um, that, that it's something that we could do now and experiment with rather than expecting some sort of monumentous, uh, political or political situation to implement a UBI, for example, to, in order to experiment with it on a mass scale. And so um, I, I proposed the, the idea of the DISC, which is the Distributed Income Support Cooperative. And these are systems of mutual aid based in, uh, based in well, re- built in with technological means. Um, and I think Holochain is really probably the best candidate for, for that build out. And I'm, I'm really happy to be talking to these guys. Um, and w- I have a devoted uh, Holochain developer helping me uh, with the governance framework right now. But once that governance framework is is completely over the finish line and tested, that's really where my, my, my um, compelling argument in this article that got so much interest from people and developers around the world, uh, and I was shocked by that, to be honest, uh, it, was, it was really, uh, really humbling and, and, it, and it required my leadership to the point now that we're actually launching a for-profit entity yeah. to, uh, to create this tech. I'm I'm so excited by the idea of mutual aid and by the people who are interested in mutual aid from all parts of the political spectrum, because what it does is cuts through all this question of means, identifies a common end, namely the the renaissance of community, of uh, looking after each other as human beings, which is what people often share as common ground, but political acrimony uh, causes us to forget. So that's one thing I'm really excited about is that we can actually test out new systems of mutual aid. And once we find the ones that win, we are suddenly transcending politics and entering into systems of common purpose and common mission where we lock arms in solidarity. We help lift each other other up as a brotherhood of man and and start to become the social safety net. Mm. Yeah. So... I'd love to spend a little bit more time, if you're willing, and kind of explore this experiment with you, um, just as a kind of embodiment of, of the ideas that we've been talking about. So um, maybe we can start off, um, and you can just sort of describe what mutual aid is to you and what, what it means um, when you say that we're going to build these kind of mutual aid uh, distributed spaces. Sure. Um, yeah. So the mutual aid is really not a new idea. And this is one of those things where, hey, I get to look at the wisdom of the past and see what people did in the past that that was lovely and valuable and that's no longer around with us to any appreciable degree. We have a pretty robust civil society sector, uh, sector here in the United States, but we don't have a robust system of mutual aid like we used to have. And there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, mutual aid sector used to have the Rotarians, the Elks, the the VFW, the this, the that. I mean, it went on. The um, the ca- the Catholic, you know, 
this and that, the Mormons, I mean, all sects, all ethnicities, you name it, they would self-organize into these mutual aid societies or fraternal societies. And under the tax code, 501C8 and C10, you can find these ways of self-organizing through legal means in the lodge system for these, just these sorts of organizations. But they're not really around anymore. And the reason that they were around is that that was what the welfare state was back then. It wasn't a state. It was self-organized. With the rise of the welfare state in the 20th century that was that rose really uh, in, in parallel with a couple of world wars and a Great Depression, these were crowded out to a very great degree. In other words, they couldn't compete with free uh, or taxed. And so, um, you know, if... If you're being taxed, if you're being taxed in, in, in contributing to a system and receive the benefits of that system, it uh, you have less of an incentive to to engage in, in mutual aid societies. So these kind of these systems sort of went away. They were also beset with certain kinds of problems that infect uh, insurance pools, namely moral hazard and adverse selection. So folks who are interested in, in insurance, which can be boring as hell, will will know that that those are problems with insurance pools. So if you if you if you fix the incentives, which you can do with programmable incentives on the blockchain or through Holochain, then you've got the opportunity at least to fix that problem. Now, I don't, I'm under no illusions the welfare state's not going away anytime soon, uh, but I think you can make the incentives strong enough and the gamification aspects, the community aspects robust enough that we can bring about a renaissance in mutual aid. And I think people from all over the political spectrum are going to be open to that. Whatever the government does, whatever traditional insurance does, they're going to like having control and transparency and participation and community and all of these aspects that have been lost by virtue of these large centralized systems. So I'm super excited about that. And I think it's extremely promising, so much so that I'm probably going to be devoting my life to it at least for the next three years to try to make it happen. Mm, Great. And and, um, so now flipping, I think, could be useful to flip to the perspective of somebody who might participate in a version of this uh, as it kind of becomes uh, feasible and real. I guess, it's, I, or I guess it's feasible now, but it's not yet available to participate in, we might say. Um, but when those doors open, what would be the experience of a participant? Sure, sure. So let's imagine uh, for a moment, there's all kinds of things. A disk is really... Um, is really ambiguous with respect to what sort of mission animates it. Okay. But we can think of some examples. I think one of the first one, and this is not going to be terribly sexy for people who care about the most vulnerable in society, but I think it's just like cell phones uh, penetrated the poor after, after uh, a time, I think uh, all new technologies can, can uh, get better, faster, cheaper and, and become accessible to, to the poorer among us. So I'm going to start with, people who are better off, okay? Um, because I think there is a felt need here in terms of uh, the first people that we believe are going to lock arms. And that's the crypto community. Mm. These are folks who are taking lots of, taking certain kinds of risks in a very delicate and, uh, and uncertain regulatory environment to do interesting things to save the world. Some of them are just trying to make a buck, no doubt about it. But there are a lot of people who are trying extremely speculative things in the crypto space. Well, our first order of business is going to be able to create a mutual aid society for decentralists, for people who 
are um, dealing with regulatory and tax authority uncertainties and can can join these mutual aid associations. So if if these sort of predatory uh, state actors or agencies try to come after them and make examples of them, they'll have a community to support them. And so their contribution each month will come with all sorts of, you know, we hope bells and whistles and acknowledgements and things like that, that, that lift the members of community up and, and, um, and help them continue to ascend in terms of their, their spiritual and, and material development. But they also have, are able to have a sense of security that they're not alone. Mm. Right now, there's a lot of just uh, sort of people who are out there into it, praying that nothing ever happens to them, but they don't really have a community of support. Um, at least not one that has a formal way of helping them out and a commitment to doing so. That's what we, we see as one of the first, um, the first examples of a disc technology is, is for the people who are the very people who are at risk for, for being attacked, attacked by those central power structures that are going to feel threatened more and more as these technologies come online. Yeah, and so that's one. Cool. Oh, the, go, the, on, go on. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, well, so I mean, it sounds like you're uh, offering a, a potential solution to the, the plight of the precariat. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term, but specifically starting with precariats who are also decentralistas, if we can use that term. And I, and just to put a fine point on it, because I think you said it, but I want to, I want to double click on it. Essentially, this will be a institution, a social technology that you can opt into that if you kind of agree with the rules of the game, at least in the context of this specific disc, which again are these kind of like self-organizing units that can build these contacts that people participate in, uh, if you agree to the um, rules of this disc and, and you know act in good faith, like you're you know, a quote-unquote good citizen, <laughs> then you mm-hmm. get, uh, you know, uh, if, if something happens, like the, the rug gets pulled out from under you or... I imagine if there's a like some kind of health problem, or if perhaps you just want to quit your job and do something for the sake of the future of the planet, that might be um, supported by the disc. Is that accurate? Absolutely. I mean, the answer to the specific uh, case that you gave of someone who wanted to um, to transition into a new role or something like that. I mean, obviously it would be, that would be determined both by, by sort of the constraints expressed in the charter, but it would also be determined by the community uh, through the governance process of the disc. So, but in theory, yeah, anything is possible. You, you're obviously not anything is possible. I mean, you, you can't have unsustainable discs. If you had a disc where, uh, everybody wanted to to join, uh, quit their job and join. That's not right. <laughs> that's not going to be uh, uh, sustainable. Uh, it's it's gonna it's gonna require big fish, little fish, everything in between. Participants, people who participate more, uh, people who participate less, are going to have to delegate their participation and so on. But with all the caveats about sustainability, yes, you can through your charter set up any mission and and essentially within reason, any rules um, p- that, you know, provided, I mean, you could set up any rules, even if, if we don't provide a governance process that you like, let's just say that everybody in, in a certain disc likes democracy. We're going to try our dead level best not to give them democracy. 
but they can always fork the code and just go back, revert back to democracy and run a disk that way. It's, it's totally possible. And that is their, that is, that is in, in a, in a sense, their right of exit. Um, and because we are absolutely committed to open source, we know that, um, there will be all sorts of experiments in, in social technology that arise from these, these structures. And that's in our mind, a good thing. Mm. And so do you foresee, let's say that these get released and, and, uh, you know, uh, philanthropists and other people, crypto people are, are persuaded to fund these disks and, and people self-fund and they start to flourish is your vision that they essentially become the basic like kind of whole on of the polycentric future that you envision in the social singularity? That is my deepest wish, but I don't feel so doctrinaire about it to think that I know what it's going to look like. Um, so the answer to the question is yes, I do hope that. I hope that something along these lines will be the mechanism by which resources are commonly pooled and dispersed. Um, I think this is in, in the book, The Social Singularity, I make a distinction uh, between disintermediation and hypermediation, which sounds, sounds like just gobbledygook words, but disintermediation for those who are familiar with the crypto space is really about taking out middlemen. And if you have a mechanism that looks like a vending machine, all you have to do is put in the dollar, press the button and get the Coke, right? That's how smart contracts work. And they're really about putting the data at the, the center and the people on the edges so that you don't need middlemen. And there are tons of great use cases for this, no doubt about it. But with technologies like Holochain, they allow for what, for what we might call hypermediation, which is more and more people, more sets of eyeballs, more checkers of checker, more checkers of the checkers. So this human fractal phenomenon is, hey, um, what do you think about what that person did in this context? If they are an authority in some way, or we've we've given them authority to make a, some sort of decision or to make some sort of analysis, someone else can come along and analyze that, and and we get mm. this self uh, degree of self organization and collective intelligence by virtue of. Um, having more people involved, not less. So it's not, it's not decentralization through disintermediation in this case, it's decentralization by including more people and finding the ones who are in the best position to make decisions about the fate of commonly pooled resources. And I'm just going on the assumption that some things are in the commons and some things should be in the commons. Hmm. Hmm. So I think that the, I, I agree with you. And, and when I read your article about disks, I got extremely excited. And then when I learned that, you know, you were working with Holochain, which we've discussed previously on the show um, in, qu in quite a bit of depth, actually, um, that it just felt so ripe and fertile and like you, that this directionality is so interesting. And, um, you know, so... I want to put a bookmark in that and just say like, this is happening now. Like this is very cutting edge stuff. Like I, I, I don't know when you decided to make it a for-profit enterprise, but like this is happening, I imagine in the last handful of months at, at, at most. And so it gives you That's a right. kind of sense for how quickly this space 
is changing and evolving and growing and shifting. And um, it, it can be kind of bewildering. And so I want to now bring in another aspect of your book that I think um, in bringing it in will give people a better sense of the kind of uh, breadth um, and interdisciplinary uh, uh, reach of what you're writing. And that's uh, the relationship of uh, consciousness and psychedelics to all that we've been talking about. So, you know, we're talking about this kind of distributed, decentralized, lateralized future. Um, You know, we're talking about disks. We're talking about all of these really fascinating, I think, ideas what is the relationship between all of that process and things like uh, uh, psychedelics and uh, I know you cited the spiral dynamics and, and human development? Wow, such a it, it is. I mean, you know, it, it occurred to me as I was writing this part of the book that it, it could really be a book on its own because there's just so much so much to explore in this in this area. And I have to admit, um, short of uh, incriminating myself <laughs> under U.S. law, that um, you know I'm still a baby psychonaut, as it were. But um, I do see the benefits just in ter- just if we just take the research alone, just take the uh, re- independent research that's being done by groups like Maps out in the Bay Area, as well as uh, some of the. Uh, some of the researchers in the UK on on the effect of psychedelics on certain populations, PTSD, depressed populations, and so on. What they're finding when they test for improvements along certain dimensions for these these uh, these kind of patients, they're looking at other things now. And what they're finding, for example, is that let's so let's just take this one one element. They're finding that people after experimenting with uh, with psilocybin, which is the compound in magic mushrooms, are, are much more open to experience and novelty. So the five-factor model of personality, going into it, people who were formerly much more closed about things like art, aesthetics, experience, they're much more tentative about trying out new things or looking at things in a different way. After taking psilocybin, Suffering, suffering no cognitive uh, ability loss, ha- experience of personality, literally a personality change, meaning that they're much more open to experience. Now, if we just take that as a given, then we can assume, I believe, reasonably, that people who take uh, experiment with psychedelics are more likely to be flexible and adaptable in the coming era because it's going to be full of novelty. It's it, the, the pace on which new things come online is is staggering, and this can be this can be uh, really horrifying to populations who are low on O in the five factor model openness to experience. So that to me, it, and I'm not suggesting that oh well, let's just medicate everybody with magic mushrooms so that they're ready for the coming age. I'm not saying that, um, but what I am saying is a, is a, a in an era where we liberalize this and we think of it as much more of a, ha- having therapeutic applications, we may find that there are therapeutic app- a- a- um, applications that help with transitioning to a new era. Just period paragraph. Interestingly, though, and I don't want to drone on and on about this and, and be long winded, but 
I'll say this as well. The other interesting result is uh, authoritarianism, which is measured on different by by different metrics. But authoritarianism uh, is is a disposition in people to value hierarchy, to value order, a law and order, knowing one's place, certain things like this, which obviously in you know different contexts throughout human history would have been beneficial to the survival of the the group, right? So it's not to say that these are good or bad values, but what's interesting is the values of authoritarianism are muted when one takes uh, psychedelics. You're much less, you're much more likely to be egalitarian or libertarian, which is to say, um, people are, should be free to do more of what they want to do without hurting hurting other people, and um, and we should look after each other more. And we should be equal in our participation, say, in the political process or whatever. So that value or that disposition um, as a as a consequence of, you know, pretty modest uses of psychedelic compounds is an interesting change. The question of whether it's a good thing or not, I leave open to your audience. But I think if we if we're right about the coming social singularity the lateralization of our society that's 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 happening right now due to these technologies and that this seems like an inevitable process i think moving away from authoritarianism is likely to be a benefit on net to humanity not a, not a not a loss but i don't want to i don't want to overstate that it's it's um you know it, it remains to be seen yeah and uh just to i think uh, double click on it uh sort of theme that I've heard in this conversation is that, you know, to the degree that authoritarianism is already clearly sort of embedded in our current social technology and institutions, there's a way in which it's also embedded in our own psychology, right? Like in our own consciousness. And so if, if, if we as individuals, like going all the way down to the level of individual want to help produce an open and adaptive society, it makes just good sense that we should ourselves become open and adaptable. And, and actually that might mean sort of unwinding the, you know, the, the probably the, the tyrant that we have the deepest and most intimate relationship with, which is you know, our, our, our own, the, the one inside of us. Uh, and so I think what you're pointing to is this way in which all of what we're saying can actually ground down at the level of our own, uh, the way that we move through the world. And I like that you have in the book this idea of a, of a holist, which I'd never heard that term before, but I think it's a really beautiful way of framing it, um, as these kinds of practitioner creators of this emerging future. And I wonder uh, if you could describe a little bit about like who, uh, what a holist is and, and, and how we might think about them. Sure. I mean, I think we alluded to it a little bit earlier, and and I, I kind of used the term uh, synthesis earlier, and I think they're they're slightly different, but but similar enough to to make it interesting. Um, but a holist in my mind is is someone who um, is at the very least able to see uh, the a time and place or the interweaving of what seems like apparently different systems of value or moral languages. So you learn to be able to speak in different moral languages. You learn to be able to see 
um, see the context in which uh, one moral language ought to be spoken over another. You learn to become more empathic with others because you're able to find lingua francas with them in a moral sense or in an ethical sense rather than um, simply in, in, in language alone. So I'm using language as a metaphor for, for morality in this sense. But it really, um, you know, Jonathan Haidt, the, the philosopher, or sorry, the, uh, the moral psychologist, describes it as um, m- the moral matrices as like being like taste buds. So if I can, if I can, if I can taste someone, if I can taste salt, uh, if I'm always tasting sweet and someone else is always tasting salt, if I'm able uh, to taste a little more of their salt, then I can see uh, a much more... Um, uh, uh, forgive me for pausing right here on the show, but it's it's a much more diverse way of looking at moral systems and how they can be integrated. It's not a simple uh, value tribe anymore, but it becomes about finding the best across systems and learning to learning to be more empathic and understanding before arriving at judgment, so as to find paths to reconciliation or new models for uh, living together peacefully. That's really not what we're doing in American politics right now. Not at all. Everybody's in their moral tribes and they're digging in their heels. And, you know, Trump is a, is a Cheeto asshole and, you know, Obama was the devil and never the twain shall meet. I mean, it's just it's it's and, and it all sort of forces us into this spectacle over which we have no control. But we we argue about on a daily basis rather than actually engaging in this synthesis project of trying to understand each other better and solving moral problems together, solving social problems together. So in that sense, you know, being a holist is really, is, is really not about bludgeoning someone with your ideological priors, but trying to find points of common interest and, and ways to move forward as a human community. It's hard. It's no doubt hard, but it's going to be much more fruitful than what we're doing right now. And it's, it's, yeah, such a great way to kind of such a great way bring our conversation to a close is that I have a sense that our system is so out of control that it's actually driving people to focus more on their own growth and development, like the rise of the biohacking communities and like Tim Ferriss and all this stuff that people are like, oh my God, this is so clearly broken. Like, what can I do to at least improve my own? subjective experience. And I think what you're painting a picture of is how our own growth and development can actually extend past our kind of bag of meat self and into the wider social arena. And and I like that in the book, you say that those committed to a peaceful means of social change have only persuasion at their disposal. So we'd better become master persuaders and they say effective holists, therefore, willing to stare through others' lenses and find a way to connect with their values before those with guns, jails, and jackboots do. Right? So that's a very clear kind of articulation of a much denser form of participation in this thing that we call like society. And, you know, it's we're both Americans or American society, because I think it is important to localize this stuff. Like uh, you can become the kind of person who is 
able to practice into this kind of future. And I'm curious in the kind of idea of, of persuasion being, I think, one of the key skills of a holist, what is, how do you think of persuasion? How do you, how do you yourself uh, reflect on or approach this idea of being persuasive as a form of uh, power, really? It is exactly that. It is nonviolent power. It is a power that um, that in systems, pluralistic system of um, pluralistic system of systems, all of which have porous borders, all of which have um, we we a future in which we can invite each other into uh, systems, and and or prevent someone from exiting our system, the, the power we have at our disposal when exiting a system is low cost is only the, the power of persuasion. That is a peaceful form of power, and it is far, far prefer- preferable to uh, coercive means of making social change that tend to bring out the authoritarian in us, whether that's a right wing, a left wing, or anything in between authoritarian, um, where if we think of order at all cost, or my way or the highway, those kinds of terms, and we're willing to use the course of apparatus of government to get it, then we have turned off conversation. We have turned off that peaceful power and we have stopped thinking about how to self-organize in systems, uh, new systems of community where holists flourish. And I think uh, that will be a dark age if we allow ourselves to do that. But it's always a temptation. It's always living within us. And my hope is that when we create our tools that are more la- create more lateralized, participatory, and community-based uh, incentive systems, that, that our tools will shape us and we'll, it, it will give rise to a culture and of values that are much more tolerant, much more pluralistic and, and much more loving, I dare say. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful yeah. about it. And, and, and as you were speaking, uh, one thing that I was reminded of is uh, Tristan Harris, who, who talks about how Facebook is kind of corrupting us, um, has talked, I think, a lot about persuasive design. And, and it seems like there's a, a parallel or a pattern there that is demanding to be looked into, because I think there's also on the personal level when it comes to persuasion, I know for myself, I've had to, and I still am, kind of uh, unpacking a lot of the cultural baggage around persuasion, because I think that insofar as persuasion was defined by the system that currently exists, uh, you know, it it often feels kind of manipulative. And I think, um, let's just say like morally bankrupt or something like that, or it can be, um, not in all cases, but in any case, uh, the idea of persuasion leveraged here as a tool for power for peaceful uh, holists, as you say, um, it's a very different sense of it. And I wonder what you do or if you've encountered that kind of tension around it. And if so, like what, how you think about it now or how you approach it in your own life. Uh, It's it's such a good question. And 
it's perfectly phrased. And I want to just answer with humility by saying, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. My, this is my, an early effort to even articulate what I hope we can become. Um, I, I certainly, you know, lapse into old habits <laughs> on Facebook, like everybody else. Um, I can get a kind of dualistic uh, sense about me. You know, you're right and I'm wrong and I've got to be in my bonnet and I got to show you that you're, that you're full of shit and I'm right. You know, I think we all have that in us to some degree. And certainly I have all kinds of, uh, you know, experiences with, with being just that sort of uh, political commenter and so on. Um, so I guess I'm growing through that right now by really trying to to build the the mechanisms for for holists to be able to do what they do well and have the tools shape them. Um, so that's the first thing. But it's so very early right now, and I I have to look in the mirror and and face down imposter syndrome every day to say ask myself, am I really cut out for it? And being the person that you are hoping others will be requires a lot of effort and a lot of self-reflection. I don't always do that well. And I suspect our readers or sorry, your listeners don't either. But um, if there is anything to this, anything to this new way of organizing society, um, we, we will have to start disciplining ourselves and not just allow the tools to shape us, but to get a cultural handle on it first to, to bring the, the tools into existence. So to some degree, we're still idealists and we have to practice being idealists until it's just much more, a much easier thing to live in the world uh, and be an idealist by default rather than by consistent mm -hmm. practice. Yeah. When, really happy vision I had while you were speaking is, you know, it is so hard to see ourselves clearly. And as holists, if we if we identify with that, and I, I certainly do like, you know, um, I, not using that word, but I like that word, but, you know, the kind of sentiment behind it, um, that we care about seeing ourselves clearly. And so the idea of being in a kind of mutual aid group with other holists who have that same value and that we could kind of help mirror each other and improve that capacity for everybody is just really compelling. And I, I think that it's, uh, yeah, it's just, a, it's, it's a really, you know, I, I, I know you said that you, there's more idealism now than, than actually happening, but like, it's pretty close to happening, right? Like you, you said three years, at least the next three years, you're going to work on this. I mean, that's pretty short time scale for, <laughs> you know, the, the, the changing human coordination systems and relationships. And this is also, we can imagine just one of probably innumerable projects now, like actually uncountable because so many of them aren't public yet. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's a really fascinating <laughs> future that we're moving into. and. Max, I, I want to appreciate you for, I think, doing one of the best jobs I've seen of, of consolidating all of the vectors into a single book. I, th I think about, like, if I were going to recommend one book to just get a sense of all of the dynamics, um, I would suggest yours right now, I think, because it's, it's, 
it feels kind of complete in in that way. Like it's not just political theory. It's not just uh, technological futurism. It's not just consciousness stuff. Uh, but it's the meeting together and 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 um, honoring of all of those different dimensions, each of which is is uh, co- complex to say the least. Yeah, I mean that's that's it's beautifully said. Um, and you know, I think the the biggest challenge, just to to tack on a little to that, is I think you're right. The first thing we're going to have to do is discover that we're holists, those of us who are, and there will be a tiny minority. And then we're going to have to um, be practitioners of holism enough to get the tools built, because these things co-evolve, these systems co-evolve, our cultural systems and our institutions co-evolve. Our rules and our tools shaping us. We shape our tools and so on. This is this is the way it works. <laughs> but we have then to figure out and acknowledge the truth that other people, if you want to appeal to spiral dynamics, that's a good heuristic, that people are in different phases of their psychosocial development. And so we're going to have to be patient. And we're going to have to find mechanisms for assisting people on their journey towards holism and away from acrimonious politics or away from, as, as they might say in spiral dynamics, first tier systems. Um, while preserving what is uh, good and useful about first tier values, integrating them uh, more, more seamlessly into a holistic framework. Th- this, this is all we're just at the beginning of such an, um, it, it's a staggering. Once one really starts to think about it, it's staggering because it's so, it seems so hard. The, 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 um, the hill seems so steep to climb, but I think it's possible and it's going to happen in a spreading activation fashion out from holists who are building good tools people like the guys behind uh, Holacracy or Holochain. Both both of those folks are ready to unleash some serious forces of, mm. of holism. Yeah, in the yeah. World. it reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, or podcasts I just released with Jordan Greenhall, um, where he said, where he said that the future oh, yeah. is going to be like the future we're looking at, I'm paraphrasing, is going to be way more different than we, think that it's just going to be very, very different. And I think you're, it's well said, you know, about um, just <laughs> the, the, the kind of awe inspiring nature of what it is that we might be moving into, hopefully that we're moving into, but it's going to be super different. And I appreciate you for attempting to represent that, uh, some of the components of that, of that vast differencing difference. And so, um, Thank you so much for coming on the show. This conversation was a, a true pleasure, and I look forward to uh, you know continuing to be uh, in connection with you. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. I can't thank you enough. <laughs>